and welcome to Look Down There, the show where we talk about all the things we don't talk about. I'm your host, Michelle Amore. Today, my guest is burlesque superstar, costume designer, a high fashion fetish model, and a feminist. She was just recently featured in the spring-summer Moschino film directed by Jeremy Scott called Jungle Red. Look it up because it is exquisite, beautiful. She is also an advocate for mental health awareness and social change. Please welcome, direct from LA, Miss Miranda. Hello. Hello, Miss Miranda. So nice to see you here. So nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, looking fabulous as always. Zoom oh, glamour pandemic. She, right? We try. We try our best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So, Miss Miranda, tell me about how you found yourself in the glamour and fetish world, which there there is some crossover, but not necessarily always. So how did you find yourself there? I first got started in the kind of glamour and fetish modeling world as a result of doing burlesque when I was super young in London. Um, I first went to a burlesque club when I was 17 um, and kind of befriended the performers and producers there and pretty quickly started doing like little simple acts there like Tableau Vivant and um, kind of duo acts where I was essentially helping out on stage so I could kind of dip my toe in. At that uh, eight at 17? Yep, yep, you, at 17. Were you saying you were older? How did you do that? I mean, they knew I was 17. It, it, so there was kind of a sweet spot in London um, at that time in, I guess it was 2001, 2002, where um, they didn't really have strict IDing laws at clubs and bars. And so, you know, I, I told everyone how old I was and they just said, you know, if anyone... If anyone asks you to say you're 21, I'm like, yeah, sure, everyone. Um, so that's how that started. And I was approached by somebody in the audience who was a photographer who asked me to do a test shoot for a lingerie brand and kind of just went from there, really. Mm-hmm. And before long, I was... Um, I was starting to get involved in the fetish scene in London at a club called Torture Garden, which is now pretty, pretty famous, infamous. And um, that was my first experience wearing latex. So I was asked to do some of the fashion shows there, which um, they're famously theatrical fashion shows. Obviously, there's there's a catwalk, but there's very much a kind of a theme and a character to all of the models. So there's a a strong parallel with burlesque there where each outfit has a character to it. So that was something that I took to really quickly, I think, and really enjoyed. So that kind of gave me a, a boost in the fetish community too. Was What was the thing about fetish that drew you to it? Like when you discovered it, were you like, oh, like this is it or where you're like, oh, this is cool. Like, is it actually a fetish for you? Or how do you feel about that? I think one of the first things I was really drawn to were the classic illustrations by John Willie for the original Bazaar magazine, um, which uh, 
I was shown by some of the performers that I first worked with that the club I went to when I was 17, which was called the Whoopee Club. Um, and there was a, there was a particular graphic, um, no, it's not exactly a graphic novel. There was a kind of comic strip within it by John Willie called The Adventures of Sweet Gwendolyn. And it depicted this really amazing dichotomy of women between basically just the archetypes of dominant and submissive, these amazing statuesque, black leather clad, villainous dom women, and then these sweet, submissive, lacy, blonde, curly-haired, sweet women. And I think I think I was very drawn to the idea of there being two different aspects to my personality that I could identify with both of those characters. Um, in, in real life at that time, I was extremely shy, like kind of painfully shy, unable to talk to people. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a cliche backstory for a performer, I'm sure, but the stage was definitely an outlet for me to explore that more more dominant aspect of my personality, I suppose. And I think being in the fetish environment and getting to meet other people who understood that, that kind of conflict that you can have in your personality was really helpful to me because I, I think it was something I'd never had access to before and never understood before. And it helped me feel, it helped me feel like I, I wasn't, like there wasn't anything wrong with me. Like I wasn't a kind of freak, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love that explanation. That's really great. Cause we do often contain, you know, at least two sides. We have many. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to express that and play within those archetypes is, is actually a really healing process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to whether they feel like they're, into fetish or not you know i think most people have a kind of switch element to their personalities there'll be some situations where they feel more extroverted more dominant and some situations where they feel more submissive and more shy and and introverted and the more we can understand that i think it's easier to relate to each other mm -hmm. and plus latex is just really cool well, yeah <laughs> and leather and corsetry yeah. and high yeah. heels and stockings yeah. and mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, this yeah. is getting heated, Miranda. <laughs> I have my shoe shelf right next to me here, so I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just go by and lick them or sniff them or something. I, I mean, it's literally right next to my bed, so the first thing that I see when I wake up is this shelf of of high heels, and it's. It's very calming to me. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Shoes. You know those things we used to wear? Shoes. Oh, I still wear them. <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, I do. I, I can't like not wear them. <laughs> what did you say? I can't not wear them. Oh. <laughs> I just don't always walk in them. Yeah. Just around the house in your, in your Louboutins, right? Yeah. 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 Or, no. or laying in bed. Yeah. Laying. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like your style, girl. Yeah. Um, 
they're not all made for walking. You know that. That is true. That's true. (laughs) Um, So I have always had a really strange relationship with glamour, and we have talked about this before privately. Mm -hmm. Um, The question that always comes to mind for me is, is glamour the the mask or the truth like what what is it and it is a question that i constantly exploring and interested in and i'm interested in your your answer to that question and also what glamour means to you i studied graphic design at art college and i remember very clearly a lecture that we had where we were talking about different ways that advertisers communicate with their audience. And glamour was one of the examples brought up as something that's very powerful to use in advertising. I think we can all kind of understand the weight of that. Um, And one of the, one of the phrases that was brought up um, which I remember finding very troubling at the time, we were we were asked to consider what the definition of glamour was. And like many of us, I think I hadn't really thought about it before. And within our course, they'd kind of arrived on this definition that glamour is the ability to inspire envy in other people. And... I can see how in terms of advertising, that's something that kind of makes sense that you want to, you want to glamorize a product and make people feel like they need to have it so that other people will look up to them. But I think the idea of glamour within society and glamour is something that I'm drawn to as a woman and as a performer and as a feminist, I don't think that's the right definition at all. Um, I hate the idea of putting forward a persona that people feel envious of and that makes people feel inadequate. I hate that. Like, I deeply, deeply hate that. Um, And I think I'm guessing that some of your love-hate relationship with glamour comes from a similar place where we feel like a lot of what we have to express online is fake and doesn't represent who we really are and that it's this kind of outward expression of success and affluence that makes people think that we're more important than we really are um yeah also like you know what is what is the truth what is my truth what am i portraying because i totally feel you on not wanting to put others in that place where they're feeling Mm -hmm. less than and realizing that, you know, I was playing a part in that, even Mm -hmm. though we can't control the, um, the reaction of our audience ever. Um, you know, what I landed on is like, we can control our intentions. So then I had to figure out, you know, what are my intentions or are Mm -hmm. my intentions to, live up to these expectations that have been put forth before me, or am I going to create something new and put my own ideas to it? So yeah, it's like finding my way within that. Absolutely. Um, 
I feel like it's something that it's certainly linked to feminism, this, this idea that it's impossible to be a glamorous and uh, conventionally attractive woman and also be a feminist, that somehow we're kind of letting the side down and that we are part of the problem if we're portraying that image to other women. But I suppose for me, I interpret glamour as being the ability to inspire other people and to give them something beautiful that speaks to them. And that might not be everyone's interpretation, but that's what it means to me. If I see something that I truly think is glamorous, it's because it's it's caught my eye and it's made me excited and it's expressed something about that person to me. Mm-hmm. And I guess that to me is the most powerful element of burlesque is being able to express something really personal about yourself to the audience that they'll take away and that they'll remember. And whether you choose to do that with an incredibly expensive, super sparkly costume or something completely different, that doesn't make any difference. It doesn't doesn't affect how glamorous it is. It doesn't affect how powerful the performance is or how much people will remember it. Yeah, and glamour, you know, old school definition would be more to charm, right? To to Mm -hmm. pull people in, to attract people. And glamour can be used to get your message across. Mm -hmm. Especially in the case of burlesque, like glamour can be a tool to get whatever message you want to convey across to the audience in a way that's um enticing right yeah. inspiring right yeah. um and glamour can look different and that like that's what i landed on like there is not just one way to be glamorous there's not one way to attract people and pull people into your orbit or to convey that message and i think mm-hmm. when we hear the word glamour we think of one image, right? Maybe we mm-hmm. think of the Hollywood glamour or the pinup model, right? Or so- we think of expensive shit, you know, like, oh, look at this amazing holiday that I'm on. Look at this expensive handbag that I have. You know, it's like, it's not about that. Right. Yeah. It's about using the tools that you have available to you in yeah. order to bring, to bring yourself out. So, you know, to capture attention and give a message. Right. And so maybe it's not a mask. Maybe it's more of a tool. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that's a pretty good definition. Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly relate to that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely exceptions. I think for, there are a lot of people where it is a mask and, and they are definitely hiding something or hiding from themselves or, you know, whatever. There, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I think it's a really mm-hmm. interesting concept, and it, you know, it's something that I could talk about forever. But yeah. we, won't, we won't talk about it forever here. Um, <laughs> but I want to go back to you discussing that this is really a, a way for you to express your your feminist views. And I think when we think of glamour, we don't mm-hmm. think of feminist. So. Mm-hmm. How how do you use glamour and and that world to 
stand in your in your feminist belief? I think, and you know, obviously there are people who won't agree with this or don't understand it, but I think the act of using your body, using your nudity, using your sexual identity to make a living is a feminist act in itself. And I think the more that people are able to see women who are empowered to do that, I think that's a really important thing for society. You know, we're, we're bombarded with kind of passive sexuality of women throughout media, throughout film and TV and the music industry. And that's something which I think is starting to really change, particularly within the music industry. I think people are really starting to appreciate artists who own their sexuality and are kind of unabashedly hypersexualized. And it's something that's being celebrated for the first time almost ever. Um, and that's, that's an exciting movement to get to witness. And certainly, certainly the kind of attention that the Me Too movement has received in the multiple waves that we've seen, I think it's helping people kind of reframe what their idea of female empowerment is. Yeah, and empowerment, again, just like glamour, can look so many different ways. But if you are in charge of your output, your image, mm -hmm. and, and what you're representing, and you're in charge of your sexuality, you have that autonomy and that agency, mm -hmm. I mean, that is feminism at its core, to Absolutely. be yeah. in charge of that for your, for your own person, mm -hmm. and not not doing it to sell records or whatever because mm -hmm. we're used to that right and yeah. that's where it that's where things start to get sticky and and a little ugly um but and obviously you know i'm not sure this is something that a lot of people have already touched on but burlesque is quite unique in the sense that almost always burlesque performers have complete creative control of the acts that they're putting on stage and i think um when you really consider that, it's something that's very, very rare within performance art for, for the artist to have costumed, choreographed, possibly even edited the music that they're performing to, been involved in the lighting design, in the marketing, in every single aspect of the character that they're selling. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think they're can be anything more feminist than that, really. Yeah, I mean, it is such a unique art form because we are in charge of so much, if not mm -hmm. all, of, of the presentation. And mm -hmm. honestly, that's probably one of the, the biggest things about the neo-burlesque movement is that we are a self-contained production. Mm -hmm. And I think back in the heyday of burlesque, um, yes, some women did have their own points of view but a lot of them were just handed a name and a costume and said to go on stage and entertain the men you know like it, it wasn't the same kind of empowerment that we are experiencing now absolutely and i imagine kind of similar to 
Hollywood and the music industry today, the people who were able to have creative control back then weren't able to achieve that until they got to a really high level in the industry. And clearly within contemporary burlesque, that's not the case. You know, you, you kind of, you, you're in charge from day one and you work your way up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you have always been really great at giving us beautiful imagery, but now things have shifted for you a little bit where you're letting us get a peek behind the curtain and what makes Miranda Miranda and <laughs> seeing that on social media has been really refreshing and I applaud your vulnerability in doing that because I understand the risk that that takes um, mm -hmm. and the courage that it takes to do something like that because you're you're used to presenting this kind of image and and having fans that maybe just want to see you and not hear you mm -hmm. and so um, you know I understand that that's a very risky venture but. It is not going unnoticed. It is very much appreciated. And I'm curious, you know, when you decided to make that decision and, and be a little bit more open and um, generous and vulnerable with your fans and following. I think a really pivotal moment for me was in 2017 with the whole Harvey Weinstein scandal. And that, that wasn't the beginning of the Me Too movement, but it was a very, very major wave of it. Um, getting to witness all of that happening, getting to see how many women were coming forward um, in the media, expressing the problems that they'd had was extremely poignant to millions of women. And um, I think to me personally, it made me feel like I had a responsibility to use whatever platform I had to try to amplify women who felt able to come forward about experiencing abuse, uh, which is something I have personal experience of. Um, I actually experienced a uh, like I had a flashback experience during that whole period in 2017, which really made me realize like, I, I have to deal with this now. Like I can't just ignore it anymore. Um, and I think a lot of people probably went through very similar stuff. Um, so I think that that was a big turning point for me. And then feeling like, um, it was important to share elements of my struggles with depression as well, because I realized how that was linked to the tra trauma experiences I had. And um, I guess how much I felt it would have been less of a burden for me at the time I was really suffering with depression if I'd understood how common it was and how many people deal with it. And that there's just still this huge stigma around talking about mental illness particularly in England where I'm from. It's just, you know, you don't talk about it. Um, so, yeah, um, I felt like I have a following. It's not huge, but it's big enough to help a few people if I talk about things that are difficult to talk about. But if it makes some people feel supported, if it makes some people feel like 
maybe they don't have to keep things secret, then I, I want to be able to do that. Yeah. Si silence is the keeper of shame. Exactly. The, the more that we can talk about things, the better. And it takes one person, right? So if you're talking about it, maybe you've helped at least one other person to talk. Yeah. And that's, that's enough to make it worth it, even if it's just exactly. one person. Exactly. Yeah. What has the response been? Um, and, and how have you felt as you've been talking more about your depression and trauma? What has changed for you? I think, you know, that's been one of the biggest things for me is recognizing how no longer keeping it secret has been a really healing process for me. And that is personal to me. And I, not everyone is the same. Some people aren't ever able to share the experiences that they have. And that's completely valid too. You know, I'm in no way saying everyone needs to find a way to share whatever difficult things happen to them, you know, that sometimes it's not the right, it's not the right path to take. But for me, it has been incredibly helpful getting feedback from people who've told me that it's helped them to read my story. It's, it's helped them to speak to their families or open up to their friends. Um, and it's made me feel like the, really shitty things that I've been through weren't just a massive waste of my life and of my time because they've indirectly helped some other people a little bit. Even if it's not a huge impact, it's something. And that that helps me feel it helps me feel less um less sad that it happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of put some purpose around it for lack of a better word, because yeah. I mean, who needs that as a, as a purpose, but you know, do like creating something and using your voice in order to empower others, but also empower yourself mm -hmm. is really beautiful. And you know, the vulnerability that you're sharing, I mean, it's just making you stronger, right? Absolutely. And I, and I think that's something that became clear to me very quickly was that each time I shared something and it was, you know, it was quite incremental. Um, in fact, like people who've been following me on social media for a while will know that I, I like to post something in May because it's mental health awareness month. Like I've done that for several years. Um, and I've kind of, <laughs> Each time I've gotten like a little bit further with sharing different things or sharing more about my past. And every time it's scary, but every time I feel kind of a release after and I feel like it controls me a little bit less because it's not, it's not something that I'm hiding anymore. It's not something that I'm kind of ashamed of anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. What resources have you been able to turn to to help you through all of this? I feel extremely lucky that through my husband's health insurance, I've had access to therapy over the past three months, uh, which has been really, really helpful to me. Um, you know, just kind of 
having a significant amount of time available at the moment because I'm not constantly hustling and feeling like I need to accept every job offer that comes my way. Um, you know, that's been, that's been an amazing resource to be able to do that. Um, and my friends, I, I have a really, I have a really great support system of close friends, both here in LA and back in London who have really shown up for me and, and helped me through doing this and, um, made a lot of space for me. And I'm very grateful for that. That's great. And that's when you can see who your true friends really are. Absolutely. Yeah. So how has all of this influenced your art? How, like, has it changed your aesthetic or your energy or maybe the ideas that you have in general about what you want to convey on stage? Ooh, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, it's an interesting, an interesting question. I don't exactly feel like, you know, I haven't had an inspiration for a specific act as a result of all of this. Um, I guess I feel... I feel a lot more confident in myself and I feel a lot more confident to pursue things that I've been questioning, things that I've been afraid to really embrace before. Um, One of the biggest things for me was starting to do singing live. Like I was terrified of doing that. Um, I've done it a handful of times. Um, I was kind of pushed to do it by by my friend Tosca, who produces Tarantino show. Um, so I'm very grateful that she kind of finally, finally made me do that. Um, and that's something, that's something that I have been keeping up throughout the pandemic. I've been doing lessons remotely to kind of try and get better at, at singing and work towards doing that more. So I think definitely on the other side of this, that's something that I want to incorporate into my performance work more. Um, yeah, I I have a lot of I have a lot of ideas, and usually my problem is deciding which one to focus on so that I can really make it happen, rather than just kind of jumping between a lot of different things and leaving them half finished. Um, so yeah, I think. I think hopefully the biggest thing I'll bring out of this is just having a bit more belief in myself and a better ability to trust that my ideas are worth pursuing and following through. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to think about bringing something to the stage right now. And like, it's hard to have that kind of inspiration because if you're like, yeah, I need a deadline. I need a date. Like, what are oh we doing? Like, what are we I, 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 Yeah. I mean, literally just over the past two weeks, I have finally booked in some performance dates for later in the year. So I'm like, holy shit. Like, I actually have some deadlines to get things ready now, which is really good. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm completely the same. If I don't have an actual date in the calendar, I'm like, hmm. Yeah, I have to, I have to just self enforce and do that or else nothing is happening. Cause I'm just, I will just turn in my head for a while Mm -hmm. and then not really put anything out until I feel like it's complete. 
Yeah. And I don't even tell people my idea either. I'll just be like. Yeah. I mean, it could be a really long birthing process. Yeah. I mean, that goes for anything that I'm doing, like even this podcast or, you know, my other classes, it's Mm -hmm. everything just kind of churns in my head. Yeah, you got to get it ready. Yeah. Get it ready before you put it out there. Yeah. (laughs) It's a long gestation period. That's Yeah, that's, yeah, I understand. I understand. I'm the same. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Um, Well, during this time, you also started your own costume design company. So tell me about that. I did. Yeah. So that's something, um, that's something I was working towards for a long time. Um, when I moved to the U S in 2015, I was here on a performance visa. So, um, basically that means legally I could only do performance and modeling work. That was what my visa was for. So, you know, I had to had to make things work. Uh, I couldn't get a day job to pay the bills. That's how visas work. Um, but obviously I've always made my own costumes. That's something that I really love doing. And I kind of felt that once I was able to get a green card, um, and was able to do whatever type of work that I wanted and was legally able to start a business that I wanted to be able to start doing costuming professionally. So I launched my business called Mirabilis in July of 2020, which obviously, wait, no, I launched it in January, 2020, which was, Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. So I got, I got, I got my green card. I got my green card in January, 2020 and decided I'm going to launch my business. Um, and yeah, clearly not not the best time to be launching anything, but it was still a big milestone for me. And it's been great to be able to do a few projects here and there. Any, anything, basically anything that doesn't involve fittings I have been able to do. I've made people feather fans. I've crystal embellished shoes and other costume pieces. Um, and I'm going to be collaborating on some productions later in the year to do kind of full costuming which is going to be great um but yeah that's something that's been exciting too yeah and you're great at it I mean I'm so thankful for people like you who enjoy that type of work (laughs) I hate it and it makes me cranky like I'll have ideas all day about stuff and you know I always work really closely with my costume designers but Oh my gosh, if I had to make something, no thank you. I, well, I'm happy I enjoy it too. It's it's a very kind of uh, meditative and therapeutic thing for me. So that's nice. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. great. Well, Miranda, tell everyone where we can find you and find your costuming work and all that good stuff. You can find me on Instagram at Miss Miranda. That's M-I-S-S-M-I-R-A-N-D-A. And there are links to both of my costuming pages on my Instagram profile, Mirabilis Design and Mirabilis Crystal. One of them's kind of focusing on actual costuming and props and feather work. And the other one is specific to rhinestone embellishment. Yes. And I will say that you do all of this with very pointy nails. (laughs) 
I do. It's true. It's true. <sighs> They're basically tweezers. It's quite handy. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. I can see. I can see that working. No, it is weird. I know. I know. But um, you know, that's that's my uh, that's my process. <laughs> <laughs> and I am here for it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Miranda. Thank you for joining me today and and talking about glamour and vulnerability and bringing some awareness to our mental health. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege. Thank you. All right, everybody, time to spread your legs and spread the love. Go ahead and follow Miss Miranda. Miss Miranda, I can say her name. It's true. Go ahead and follow Miss Miranda. You can follow me at I Look Down There or at Michelle Amore. And remember that confidence comes from the bottom up. So grab a mirror and look down there. See you next time.